Hello and welcome to the Fenditon Gallery podcast. I'm Hannah, Gallery Manager at Fenditon Gallery, and in this episode I'm joined by artist Wycliffe Sutbury, who is currently exhibiting in our Waterland exhibition. Formerly a furniture maker, Wycliffe has chosen to continue to work with wood in his artistic career too. The work starts with the hunt for the timber, whether that be foraging or searching dealers for a piece that will inspire his next project. The work that we are lucky enough to show in the gallery is called A Hundred Foot Drain and has been made from a piece of bog oak that was recovered just down the road from us in Chatteris, Cambridgeshire. Wycliffe says of his work, My compositions are made from fallen and forgotten timber. They are studies in the narrative of the beauty of wood. They are made to reveal the timber's response to its environment over time, its unfashioned beauty, durability and vulnerability. The origin of the material I use is central to my work. In 2003, Wycliffe graduated from the University of Brighton with a BA in 3D craft and co-founded the Blue Monkey Studio, a collective of Eastbourne-based artists in the same year. The artist has exhibited extensively in the UK and the US and has significant works in international private collections. He has received several notable awards, including from the Craft Council UK and the Worshipful Company of Furniture Makers UK. I think we'll start with um, you kind of giving a bit of an introduction about you. Well, uh, I have a basis in the furniture making industry. I went to the London College of Furniture in the mid 80s and then went on to do an apprenticeship with Wales and Wales in Sussex, um, making very high end contemporary bespoke furniture and then I continued I moved back to London and worked with various other workshops doing not such high-end stuff sometimes and kitchens and I feel like I've I covered my ground with furniture um, and learned a lot of skills and also through working with various businesses kind of decided what I did and didn't want to do and one of the things that I didn't want to do was to find myself working with lots of machinery and noise and MDF um, but mainly I found that when I was working with timber very often the design and the form of furniture didn't regard the character of timber um, it kind of imposed a design and the distraction of function and three dimensions on timber. And I somehow wanted to find a way to allow it to speak more freely and for pieces to be led by the characteristics of wood rather than just be... Yeah, just be led by a design. Well, it was going to be one of my questions because I, you know, knew that you had done furniture making in the past. That actually, how do you think um, it it influenced your kind of your creative side of working with wood? But actually, it sounds like it kind of did the opposite and made you think. Well, actually, that's the way that I don't want to work with it. And how can I, how can I work with it in a very different way? Do you think? Do you think that's correct? Or that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean. 
I have a huge amount of respect for craftsmen uh, and furniture makers, but I felt like I wanted to deconstruct all that in a way. Um, I think there is a tradition in furniture making where you want to display your skills and your techniques, possibly sometimes to the detriment of the overall piece, and it can become just a showcase for things that you've learned um, and a kind of mastery of technique. But it can kind of be a barrier, I think, for the audience to really kind of getting a sense of the material um, because you are impressed by the finish and you're impressed by the, the joints and in a way I wanted to get back to the audience having us getting a real really direct experience of yeah kind of experience of the timber without the distractions of that so yes it was a it was a real deconstruction of everything I knew I suppose and it and that that also transferred to my practice where having used lots of very sophisticated tools and equipment I when I sort of set up on my own I paired all that back and I sort of knew the environment that I wanted and it's and it's a very basic environment and it's much quieter as well yes um, better on the ears <laughs> I'm sure much, it's a, yeah <laughs> So what so um, what actually kind of made you decide, make that final decision to make that transition into, I guess, kind of, it's not sort of craft versus art, if you know what I mean. It's kind of, it's from a maker to actually using it, I suppose, more as, as a decorative piece, although furniture is a very decorative thing in itself, I suppose. So so what kind of made you, um, made you decide that, that that was the moment that you were going to, to go off and, and create the pieces like such as the one that we've got in the exhibition at the moment? Well, I went back to college. I went and did a degree at Brighton University in wood, metals, plastics and ceramics, a materials practice degree. I sort of felt like I wanted to experiment with other materials as well. I had a fair amount of experience in metal and uh, making furniture in metal, but I wanted to have kind of play around and so I did that for three years. And interestingly, towards the end of it, I returned to wood. Before the end of the degree, I'd returned to wood and decided that I was happiest working with that. Obviously, that's um, where, your, where your passions lie. If you've done yeah. a full circle and come back to it. Then. <laughs> yeah, but it, was, but it was nice to have been around the houses and then come back to it. Yeah. You know, so I, it wasn't like I was always going to feel like, well, what if? I did learn a lot about ceramics and plastics, uh, not a lot, but something. And yeah, just it was it was good to come back and know that that was what I wanted to do. And then, I mean, it was quite a kind of mercenary decision in a way. I uh, I kind of co-founded a, a shared space in Eastbourne and had to decide. I had to kind of justify my studio space or get a proper job. And so I, I really, it really was thinking from a business angle, what can I do that will earn me a living? I'd played around with miniature environments 
at university and uh, and I made this little hut, tiny little hut out of timber um, at the end of my degree. And so, so yes, yeah, so I finished the degree and then I just started playing around with timber on a small scale, I suppose, and wanting to somehow capture the essence of the texture and the colour and the um, natural characteristics of, yes. yeah, of, of wood, but and without I, the distraction of three dimensions. Which is what I was going to say, because, you know, of course, this miniature piece that you'd made for your for your final show, but actually the sort of minute, although your work isn't min- miniature in scale now, you know, the piece that we've got is, is a rather a large piece. And I know that you work on, on large scale, but actually the elements of it still reflect that miniature side of it you know the almost matchstick size pieces of wood that you've kind of built together um to create the 100 foot drain nine that we've got in the show I can see that that you still are working kind of with with that small scale but expanding that out so do you want to um for anyone who hasn't seen your work give us a kind of overview or um a, a description of how it might come to be the piece that it is and and a bit of a description of of what your pieces look like well that's a well, very think, generalized thing but <laughs> no no well I think that's exactly right in a way I think of them think of them as aerial views on a landscape so they are reduced but I yeah I see them as looking down on the contours of the earth so you are playing the same game as as miniaturizing objects in a way you're playing god if you like you're you're getting a bird's eye view on something so and then it's just um they are layered reliefs made from tiny little tiles of timber that are laid rather like a roof is laid and they're about contour and line and texture and colour. But I but yeah, everyone I think of as as looking down, directly down on the land. Um, yeah, interesting. I find it difficult to describe them in a in so, a way that yeah. <laughs> people people can imagine. Um, well, they'll have to come to the exhibition and see it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so let, if we look at it from a slightly different angle, so um, you know, how does how does the piece begin and kind of the process of getting it? So I know that actually the wood that you use is very important, and and it certainly inspires the um, the kind of outcome of of the final piece or that the inspiration for for an area that you might look at or a landscape. So, do you want to give us a bit? How you know? How do you? How do you come to get all these wonderful bits of wood with such beautiful tonal ranges and, and things? Well, the wood is the source material in every sense. Um, and it's, I, I use it in a completely unadulterated way. The bog oak in the piece that you have at Fendison has been found nearby, near, near you, in uh, Chatteris in Cambridgeshire and it's 
been excavated. It's, it's sort of four and a half to 5,000 years old. And the, these huge trees slowly rise to the surface and they get snagged by the tines of the cultivators, the food producers. And the food producers just want to get rid of these trunks. And I know a guy who uh, gets called and goes up there with his flatbed truck and pulls them out of the ground and takes them down to Kent. And once a year, he, he harvests them. And he very kindly gives me the capping boards, which are the outside of the tree. So bog oak for me is just fascinating. It's sort of on its way to becoming petrified. It's started to change in its character. Um, when you cut it, it smells like kind of burnt rubber and it has these deep fissures. Um, but it's the colours, really, um, and the history, obviously. The colours run from black through to charcoal and to dark brown and, and then lighter brown. I think that's what um, I found so amazing about looking at the, at the 100-foot drain piece that we've got is that actually, you know, when you say bog oak, to me, I think of just a real dark charcoal, you know, kind of almost black piece of wood, but actually by kind of dissecting it in the way that you have, you see such an amazing tonal range, which, I, you know, I would have never thought was there. You know, you see, I suppose the outside is, is, is one, is one color perhaps. And, and then you kind of delve into it. It's, it's quite astonishing to see the tonal ranges within, within that. Well, that's right. And that's, I, I love working with that limited palette. Um, and it's the same when I work in Holly, which is kind of at the other end of the spectrum. It's as close to ivory as you can get in timber, really. But still, when you put when you put even those colours together, the the different, you know, the as you say, the, the variety of tonal range is is really surprising when you when you put them against each other. Um, but it's kind of subtle and I think that's kind of partly what I'm trying to do is to present that in a way that makes the viewer sort of see the, the differences. I, I, cut, I cut the timber and I slice it with my bandsaw into kind of less than millimeter strips. And then I turn them, I cut, slowly transform them into tiles. And I do, I did it, do edit the colors. I mean, I do sort of see myself as an editor, really. But again, also, I'm trying to be led entirely by the material that I have. It's a kind of constant struggle between trying to impose something on a piece, and, but also trying, trying to impose an overall structure on something, but then also letting go and which I suppose is quite topical at the moment because that's kind of how we treat the environment anyway, don't we? We sort of have this to and fro with imposing ourselves upon it. But actually, you know, there is always a response from nature um, that is not necessarily what you expected it to be or, or what you potentially wanted it to be. But, you know, it's there's always a to and fro, isn't there? So it sounds it's, like that's the sort yeah. of... Um, that's, that's a really 
nice way of looking at it, actually, that it's however much I try and control it, it never really conforms. And when I'm making sculptural work, that's a, re it's a really good, clear example of that. When I, I turn these perfect spheres in bog oak and chestnut and holly, and then they dry and they split and they warp and they crack and they distort. And I love that way that you don't, you just don't have ultimate control. So yeah, I've, I've imposed a perfect geometric form on a solid piece of timber and then it, it kind of, back. Um, <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. Told you off for doing that and it's going to go yeah. its own way anyway. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So um, it's, it sounds like kind of, um, I don't know, not failure, that's the wrong thing, but kind of imperfection is part of your, your work and your, and your kind of getting to an end point as well. But it must be quite hard to step back from that and say, okay, that has worked as an imperfection or that hasn't worked as an imperfection or something. Do you find there's a bit of, um, I don't know, again, to and fro between you trying to decide what is, is going to be successful, I suppose, as an end piece? Yeah, I, I mean, generally, it is the times when I let go that are the most successful. Um, if I try too hard to control something, it ends up looking contrived in some way. And 100 Foot Drain 9 is probably as, as far as I've gone in a way of trying to control the form and the overall, the overall plan. Um, and I really got into trouble with that piece because I, because I was trying to control the shape of things, I found myself stuck in a corner with it. And the way I was kind of forced to give up on my idea. And that is probably one of the most successful parts of the piece. When I, in order to get to the end, I had to change my plan completely Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. And, that, and it's actually, it, it feels like a huge relief when you just let go and just <laughs> um, just think, well, this is the only way I can do it. So, yeah. And, and uh, it actually just takes the pressure off completely. Um, well, it's quite interesting, you know, having seen other pieces of your work digitally, but actually having physically seen 100 Foot Drain 9, um, that that is kind of one that you felt it sounds like was kind of the most um, difficult in a way to to let go of what you wanted to um, achieve and and what actually we have on the wall which is I mean it's a fantastic piece and I suppose you know my description of it would be that you have um, I mean I'm sure actually I'd love to find out a bit more about how you create the sort of um, the smaller tiles but um you know, it's it's this layering and it's it does feel like a man-made form because you say like roofing or, or tiles that are created or laid together. But it also, you know, it's such a natural source material and it's such a natural and it's and it feels natural to show it where we are because obviously it was found just down the road and it's, you know, of, of an area that is so close to us as well. So and also I. I just I think it's so appropriate to to show at your gallery because there's also this 
which is also unusual in my pieces. Generally, my pieces extend the limits of the canvas, but with 100 foot drain nine, there's a form within it, and it's this flowing, it's this flowing form. It has movement, and I think of it as being definitely involving water, and there's a direction to it. Yeah. As opposed to it just filling the canvas. Um, so, yeah, I, it, it's it's kind of a. I just feel like it's a sort of perfect piece to show at your gallery really. <laughs> with 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 you, you know, with with the themes that you're running with it. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, the, obviously, the Waterland exhibition is very much um, about the water and the management of the water, and you know, peat and and the kind of sustainability that can come from from this area that we're in. Um, and obviously, you know, how that can can go towards um, aiding climate change and, and how we can yeah. do our bit to help that. And and so, yes, it feels very a bit like you did a full circle and came back to doing wood. It's kind of done this full circle, having been taken from Chatteris down the road. And now it's it's kind of back sort of where it where it was found, I suppose, which is which is quite nice. So, yeah, and I, I love I love that thing of you know provenance. Uh, the origin of the material is kind of central to everything, really. And I and the idea of showing work where the timber came from is is kind of the ideal setting for me. And also, you name your pieces after where the wood was found, don't you? So, do yeah. you talk to us a bit about that. So, does the where the wood is recovered influence? your like inspiration or influence what what the piece is going to be sometimes it does i feel like i have an image in my head of where i find pieces it, it started from when i was making pieces from branches that i picked up off the forest floor and i just felt like they the timber it was it's this thing of how the characteristics of the timber are affected by its environment. I mean, obviously, in in the case of bog oak, it's dramatic because it turns the timber black because it's been in these anaerobic conditions for five thousand years, and it's the acid in the in the water has reacted with the tannins in the oak, and it's turned it this inc these incredible colours. But I'm still interested. I'm interested also in the way that a very exposed situation will make a tree grow in a certain way um, and how it how timber records its environment and it kind of tells a story yeah and I suppose it sounds like that's you know perhaps why you came back to using it after experimenting with all these sort of other materials you know you can certainly tell that that you are very passionate about timber and and you know that's obviously where your 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 love lies as a material and something to work with. So, do you want to tell me how you um, create such small, intricate tiles and and how that you know how we go from a piece of bog oak? I know that it's um you get the I can't remember what you called it the outer edges from this from this chap. So the capping boards. The yeah. capping boards. That's the one. Um, how does that then? come to be these tiny tiles that get piled up when i first pick it up it's sopping wet i've 
leave it for I think probably two years, two or three years oh, wow. prior. Yeah, because it's it's incredibly heavy. Um, and I slowly try it out, and then I I start to roughly cut it, and then roughly start machining it so it has sort of square edges and it has straight lines, but in blocks. And then I leave it again to dry out, and I slowly reduce it in size. Um, and, and kind of cut bits out that I just can't use or they're too rotten. But I'm a, I, I feel like, I mean, it's not very kind of palatable for vegetarians, but I feel like I've always got a, a butcher with a piece of meat on his block and he's deciding how best to cut it to get the best sides of meat or whatever. So I have these big um, logs of wood and I try as I'm cutting I'm trying to decide trying to work out how to get the best colors and the best grain and the most interesting parts of it so as I say it's this kind of editing process so I bring it down to machined sizes and then I just start I just slice it through a bandsaw again a bit like you know the salami slicer on a um with these cut these veneer thickness strips and I keep them all in packs in order. And then I cut them to the width of tiles. So then I have these, you know, say foot long strips that are a millimeter thick and the width of the tile. And then I cut them to length with uh, my Japanese uh, handsaw, which has incredibly fine teeth. Um, but all the time I'm deciding, you know, what size tiles I need for a particular piece or a particular stage in a piece. Um, so I tend to do it in batches as I'm working on a piece. And it's worth um, noting for those who haven't seen your work that not all of the tiles within a piece are the same size either, are they? You've got variations in, in the sizes of the, of the pieces that are being layered up onto the work. Yeah, absolutely. And that they're kind of the, the size of tiles are almost like the size of the size of paintbrushes and artists would use, I suppose. It allows me to kind of create what you call those lines on a map, you know, the, the contour lines. Contour lines, yeah. Yeah. So um, it's kind of like by using the smaller the tile, the finer the pen or the finer the paintbrush. And That's a lovely means, way of thinking about it. Yeah, and it means that I can I can turn tighter corners with smaller tiles. If I want to just show colour, I'll use bigger tiles. But it also gives you a sense of distance somehow, I think, um, by... It, it, it can completely change the character of a piece. Um, from being very flowing to very staggered and jumpy. Um, so, yeah, there, there, there are decisions kind of... It, it is very influential, that business of the dimensions of the tiles and the length of the tiles. And do you um, find sometimes that the wood makes that decision for you again? <laughs> oh, definitely, yeah. <laughs> definitely. And, I, and I, you know... I, I tend to select certain areas for 
certain dimensions of tiles and but also the quality of the timber as well um the soundness of the timber and the color obviously and the grain and i think a lot of these decisions now are very quick in my head and i hope they are because you know if i start thinking about it too much i just get stuck yeah you've but, already got two years between when you get a piece of wood to when you can use it so yeah, you don't want to be yeah. thinking too much about the next stage as well <laughs> exactly yeah no i can see that oh good oh, well it's lovely to hear a bit more about the process behind it um and uh, yeah for those who haven't seen um the work then um come along to the gallery and and um and have a look because it is I, I can see very difficult to describe even as your own work it's a mixture of incredibly detailed but you know they are large scale and they are so it's it's a sort of there's a strange balance between what you're saying and, and the kind of final pieces so we've talked a bit about the sourcing and and things so aside from your bog oak dealer in uh, Chatteris yeah. um where else do you where else do you... Oh, he, he's not he's not in Chatteris he's in Kent but the, oh but the, I see but the timber came from but the Chatteris. timbers come from this, Chatteris this, this particular this particular lot did yeah yeah um so where where else do you do you have you focused with some of your work on on sourcing wood from does it tend to be through someone or or do you find your own pieces or no Jen, that the bog oak is unusual um, in that I, I do get it. I do get it from Amish. Uh, and normally, I find it. That that oh, that's how the whole thing started was yeah. me finding timber and uh, you know looking in skips. Um, a lot of my earlier work, not so much at the moment because I'm enjoying using holly and bog oak so much. But I use a lot of weathered timber, timber that's already had a life so i just made a large screen out of discarded fencing and gates and that's a whole other thing where i i kind of skin this timber that's, that's been thrown to one side and it has again to show the kind of durability and the vulnerability of of wood but the colors the way that timber weathers is um, is amazing. The, the variety of colours is extraordinary, from these beautiful silver, silvery greys and blues to black and dark brown. And um, so, yeah. So the bog oak is unusual that I go to go to a place to get it, but the holly and the weathered stuff the weather timber i find um do you have lots of people that are tend to cut down a tree and go oh would you like some of this people yeah i'm definitely getting a reputation um, <laughs> i mean it's how, how how it all started was i was just walking past the front garden of um a house just sort of two or three two or three down from, from where, where I lived and the house was being re-roofed and they'd left all the old battens lying in the front garden and they, because they were replacing the battens and then replacing the tiles and they just had these amazing colours from 
areas where the roof had obviously been leaking and the timber was quite bleached and stained and then these amazing reds and so I just asked the builders if I could take it and I took these long legs. they were thrilled. <laughs> they were. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's how it all started. My first piece was called West Terrace because that was the street where I found this this Victorian uh, join, joinery timber. Yeah. Oh, fabulous. Oh, well, yes. I mean, again, it sort of links back to this kind of environmental situation that we're in now where we have to reuse and we have to you know give things a new life and and not have such a throwaway wasteful society yeah. so you're doing your bit for climate change well done <laughs> well you know trees trees are just amazing yeah um the way that they kind of grow from nothing and they trans you know they transfer co2 to oxygen and they improve our certain our, our landscape and our mental well-being um the you know and they're just kind of majestic really i mean i i live in the middle of london in this housing estate which was built mainly in the 50s and but cleverly they were very careful about the planting when the when the when the plan went ahead and now there are these fantastic mature trees specimen trees variety big ashes and oaks and hornbeams and trees of heaven and indian bean trees but they have completely they've softened this quite harsh modernist architecture yeah and there is there is tall as the blocks now and it it it's just yeah it transforms the it transforms the the order of the architecture with mm. against trees it's a kind of like a perfect sort of juxtaposition in a way yeah how lovely well yes i mean certainly um i'm not sure many housing estates now have quite such a focus on the creative no, planting for the future I know. Do they? I know and it and it it was so it was it was so kind of forward thinking of them because mm. it has um it really makes a nice a nice place to be and i it's almost you know when you think about avenues of trees and things as well you think that someone has kind of designed that probably to never see it as a you know kind of true avenue of trees in their lifetime but they've kind of foreseen this um opportunity to to make such a wonderful um spectacle i suppose in a way that um that trees are like you say the such kind of special part of of the british landscape or most landscapes i would say and um yeah no i like this idea that you're taking them from there or certainly using the wood from an area and kind of translating that into into your work oh well it's been really interesting to talk to you at cliff so um yeah, was there anything else that we we should know? Anything we should how we can find you or? Um, uh, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, I have um, just my my website and Instagram, which are just my name. If you punch that in, lovely. Um, I'll, I'll link to those in the show notes. And thank you. People can have a look. Great. Cool. All right. Well, really nice to speak All to right, you. Gonna... And um, yeah, take care. And hopefully, we'll see you on the twenty eighth.
Yeah, lovely. All right. All right. Have a good evening. Thanks, Wycliffe. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fenditon Gallery podcast. If you would like to find out more about our upcoming exhibitions, please visit our website, fenditongallery.com. If you enjoyed this interview, I would really appreciate it if you could take the time to like and subscribe. You'll also find other episodes featuring some of the other artists and makers that we've had the pleasure of showing at the gallery. Thank you.